Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Vanny Vidi Vici, Vanny Vidi Vici. The moon above was yellow. Music all around her. In my arms I found her. I was a lucky fellow. Vanny Vidi Vici, Vanny Vidi Vici. She won my heart completely. Heaven dressed in satin, as they say in Latin. I came, I saw, I conquered. Where would I be without crap songs from the 1950s? That song, by the way, I think is exactly as old as I am. Uh, in any case, we are going to talk today about the Roman Empire. Why are we going to talk? <laughs> Why are we going to talk about the Roman Empire? Well, it all kind of began in September-ish. There started to be this idea circulating around um, that, in fact, men think a lot about the Roman Empire. Uh, and it originated, as so many things do, on TikTok. Um, or at least it was its existence was confirmed on TikTok, which is a bad w- place to try to confirm anything. But uh, yes, a, a post by Arthur Hulu, a Roman reenactor who uses the uh, username Gaius Flavius, uh, posted on Instagram, Ladies, many of you do not realize how often men think about the Roman Empire. Ask your husband, boyfriend, father, brother. You will be surprised by their answers. And so people started to do this, and the results sounded something like this. This is the TikTok clip, Cat. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I thought about it yesterday. I thought about it today. But I probably don't think about it every day. Probably like every other day, maybe. Well, if I was to stay on average, like half of the days. Sometimes I think about it every day. What? <laughs> That's crazy. What? Why do you think about it every day? Cool. <laughs> and that, by the way, is a bro eating a wrap while he's answering that question. I think that's important to know. And now the reality is, I mean, I think about the Roman Empire a lot, too. But we should observe that many of us went to a secondary school with a Latin motto. Uh, the one where I went to school is Winket Kisi Winket, um, which is uh, she conquers who conquers herself. Um, and then I went to a, pl- a college where the m- motto was looks at veritas, uh, light and truth. I live in a state. All of you live in states. Most of you live in states where the motto is cree transtulit sustenat. He who transplanted us sustains us. Um, it's the month of October, which is one of the 10 Roman month calendars, like Roman calendar months. Uh, we have coins emblazoned with uh, E pluribus unum. Our writing and speech is full of ETC and IE and EG and et al. And our jurisprudence system, jurisprudence being itself uh, a Roman phrase, uh, is full of mandamus and habeas corpus. Uh, our popular culture, Harry Potter spells, are usually either in Latin or kind of seem like they're in Latin. Uh, and the names are Severus, Lucius, Sylvanus, Bellatrix. Uh, part of the Star Wars story arc is the transformation transformation of a republic into an empire. Game of Thrones is heavy on Roman tropes when the Khaleesi presides over the 
the gladiator the gladiator games they look like roman gladiator games the federalist papers were written under the pseudonym publius i mean you kind of live in the roman empire you just don't notice it it's a it's the water in your fish tank uh but there's a lot more to say about that and um it's going to be said much more knowledgeably by our guest starting with doug boyne uh douglas boyne is a professor of history at st louis university and the author of alaric the goth an outsider's history of the fall of rome among other books i've been reading alaric it's just terrific it's just fascinating and it is full of wonderful, colorful details and has a lot to say about that particular moment. Uh, so, first of all, Doug Boyne, welcome to our show. It's a great pleasure to join you. And I, you, don't, you caught me with my mouth full. You know, it's dinner time here in Rome, and I feel like <laughs> to play to the trope of the TikTok, I should have a mouthful of pizza or something. Absolutely. Well, um, you know, first of all, yes, you are in Rome. You're joining us by Zoom, which is really uh, adds to the color of things. And um, so, first of all, it's kind of stupid to ask you how often you think about the Roman Empire. It's your job, <laughs> right? You don't have any choice uh, about it at this point. You made your choice a long time ago, right? I did. I did. My my grand my grandparents were were very nice enough to send me when I was in high school to um, to to get a flavor of the Mediterranean, and uh, I was taking Latin at the time, and and it just turned into. Um, it, it turned into that choice that I had to make ever since, which is I have to go back. I have to have a excuse to think about the ancient world every day. And I, I made a series of choices that made that happen. Um, and, and so, but when you ask other men in your life, how often they think about the Roman empire, what kind of answers do you get? Uh, <laughs> this is actually, this is quite funny because my my husband of 15 years, uh, if you asked him how many times he thinks about the Roman Empire a day, he'll probably say zero, or he'll defer to when something has come up that I have kind of forced upon the conversation. So at home, from a very kind of personal perspective, we go off in, we spin off in completely different directions. I'm the only one in the household who is responsible for um, antiquity, evidently. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there are some fanciful and amusing aspects to this whole idea, but they're from some, from there are some fairly serious ones as well. And maybe you could talk a little bit about um, the portrait you paint uh, of Rome going into or toward 410. You talk about an environment of political extremism, obsession with religious identity, border issues, including the separation of children from their parents as a way of controlling and possibly punishing immigrants. All of this sounds just a little bit familiar, Doug. Yeah, it, it was it was actually quite difficult to to really wrap my head around because the the sources just kind of you know the, the sources will lay lay it all out there and and you have to kind of you know for me as a as a historian i really just want to do justice to who those people are what their experiences were and trying to describe someone like alaric you know standing on the border of the empire and, and knowing that he wanted to be a part of it was a very kind of profoundly moving scene for me because the romans had always talked about themselves as a band of outsiders, their origin story that they loved repeating to, to, to everyone drew a really sharp line with the Greeks, for example. They, they often <laughs> they made fun of the Greeks for thinking that they had grown from the land and that, that you could, you know, that they came from, they were like mice that you found when you plowed the field. The Romans had a, had a much 180 degree different origin story. They were 
just uh, rebels and outsiders and and kind of vagabonds that had come together to found something, a community that um, that shared the same values. And when Alaric stood on the river, it, there were Goths of his generation who had remarkably seen the same thing. There's a very famous scene of um, a Goth standing at the rivers of Constantinople and saying, I'd only ever heard that this place was like a bunch of waters flowing together, but here now I'm seeing it with my own eyes. And he was speaking about language and he was speaking about ethnicity. And what was so difficult about Alaric's story is that that literally is the moment when Rome made different choices to be a different place. Yeah, I want to talk about that. But before I do that, I just want to say also, we have somebody manning the phones today. It's Jonathan McPants. Uh, if you did want to call in with either tell us how often you think about the Roman Empire, I mean, tell us more colorfully than that, or, or some other aspect of this conversation, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. I'll give the number out a couple more times as we go along here. Yeah, I don't know if, uh, if the thing you were just referring to, Doug, is the thing that I'm thinking of. But one thing that I've thought a lot about from your book is the Edict of Caracalla uh, and how it would have affected uh, we should. We got to go back. We're we're going too fast. Um, we should say Alaric is a goth. Uh, he's a goth. Uh, he is regarded by the Romans as a barbarian, um, and he is ultimately the person who leads the sack of the city in 410. Um, but talk a little bit about the Edict of Caracalla granting citizenship to uh, freeborn inhabitants of the empire and how that might have affected. Uh, Alaric, had it stayed in place to the time when it would have affected him? Yeah, it's um, it's an extraordinary moment in history. History, you know, as we know it, is punctuated by names and dates almost to the to the detriment of the profession of history. People don't want to remember names and dates anymore. But 212 AD, Emperor Caracalla does something really remarkable in Roman history, which is amongst the you know, the modern map of the, the Roman Empire would cover 48, 50 modern nations on three continents. And what Emperor Caracalla does is grant citizenship status to every freeborn person living in that territorial space, which is remarkable for two reasons. One, the Romans never had a diverse citizenship body like that before in their history it had always been kind of piecemeal um, stitched together. And after 212, it creates a really remarkable sense on the borders that you might still be able to go to Rome and and gain these, these citizenship rewards. You, you know, the largest one being you can't be sold into slavery. There are legal protections for your inheritance, for your body, for your person. And after 212, what's really, really, really fascinating is that this seems to be the last point. It is the last point in Roman history where citizenship is ever given out on such a grand scale. The Romans become very stingy with uh, rewarding, awarding it to people. And Alec will, will never get it. I mean, uh, and a sort of proof of concept um, we do have a, a quote-unquote barbarian. We have a Thracian uh, named, um, who becomes named Maximinus, who becomes emperor, which would be an inconceivable thought, I assume, pre-Caracalla. You don't have some big, huge, strong guy. I mean, Thrace is like where they send Ovid into exile. <laughs> this <laughs> is not Thrace a dis- literally is the, the land of Spartacus. It's, it's yeah. the land of, um, you know, if you wanted to pick a, a name for your 
for your gladiator, you called him a Thracian because Thracian was the sign of someone who was savage and knew how to wield a sword. Um, so the idea that there would be an emperor who comes from this um, kind of feared region of the Mediterranean uh, is a wonderful evolution or is a wonderful product of Caracalla's thinking, um, but it, it, it never gets, you know, it never gets past that generation. Yeah, and do we know why it doesn't carry over why it doesn't it's not sustained the the sources from after caracalla's time and and going into alarix are are not clear but they are quite evocative of a bigotry and a xenophobia and a, a, an uptick in just a general feel from fear fear uh, of outsiders so much so that we hear stories that the Romans tell about losses that they um, suffer at the racetrack, for example, you know, gambling losses or, or, or whatnot. And in the middle of these sports events that don't go their direction, they turn upon foreigners in their midst um, to, as a way to kind of take out their aggression. So something about the, 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 inc the increase of visibility for outsiders who might not wear togas or who, who might speak foreign languages, something about that um, unsettling, unsettles a, a lot of Romans. And there is a very hostile, um, th those become hostile flashpoints in later history. Yeah. Um, and and for, for if people are listening and you can't imagine mapping this onto your present reality, you're not trying very hard. And it's always dangerous to do that with, with history that, that's that old. But it's also, I think, dangerous to ignore something like that, uh, to ignore those kinds uh, of similarities. Um, well, first of all, I just want to say that there are um, Sometimes the people who are being governed, uh, uh, provincially governed by the Romans, could be very resentful of them. Uh, sometimes they could appreciate what was being given to them. Uh, we have an example of this right here. Uh, this uh, is a, a group talking about what the Romans have ever done for them. This is A2. And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct? What? The aqueduct? Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. Uh, that's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, Reg. Remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you the aqueduct, the sanitation, the two things the Romans have done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously yeah. the roads. I mean, the roads go without sand, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct, and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine. Mm -hmm. Education. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine. Yeah, yeah, that's something we've really missed, Reg, if the Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly know how to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Yeah, nothing, really. So, um, Doug, I think it's Monty Python, obviously, but, you know, we have a, a lot of representations of Rome in our popular culture, whether we watched I, Claudius when, when it came out or Rome on HBO or the movie Gladiator. Um, but what are the struggles? You're there in Rome right now, and when people go to Rome, I think sometimes they're a little bit surprised by how things look because they don't look 
quite as colorful as they, as they do uh, in, in movies. And a lot of that is because the marble there was just stripped by, oddly enough, the Christians, because uh, they once they got going, they wanted marble uh, to build their stuff. But there's it, it's a challenge to make that landscape that you're sitting in the middle of right now resemble in our minds what it was like in, you know, two, three, four hundred uh, A.D. Yeah. And, and I have to say there's a exhibit on here right now. I had a chance to go to it last week with um, a virtual reality component or an augmented reality component. I have to say it kind of blew my mind in terms of what researchers are doing these days to put you in the middle of the most dilapidated, the most, the darkest, most obscure, hardest to read archaeological site. That's what people always complain about the most when they come to Rome is that without didactic material around, without signage, it's very difficult to understand what you're even looking at it at one point. Is it an aqueduct? Is it a bath? You know, the Monty Python had it easy. They just listed them for you. <laughs> but the, the, the virtual reality experience that, that is on at Nero's house right now, for example, opens up this vista of the city in a way that um, it just puts you down inside of it. The, the tree is is kind of waving with the breezes. The aqueducts are on the distance. And it was really, really poignant, I think, to for me to see it. I had I've been coming here for 30 years now, and I just had this profound sense of 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 a time period that was lost mm-hmm. and and it was it left a, a huge impression on me because it raised all sorts of issues of of the the world that we're we're creating for ourselves right now and and what parts of it we want to can take with us as we move forward in time and what parts of of the past we want to get rid of there's a just give you one example of you mentioned all the the mottos from universities and mine down from graduate school was uh that citizenship is the defense of the state um presidium civitatis uh is the is the the motto of the university of texas at austin and i think we go back to places like rome we go back to to these awe-inspiring moments not just to tick down the list of um what they got right but we have to have that awareness in ourselves to want to have a conversation about what they got wrong. And those are the parts that I'm actually fascinated by as a researcher, because I think they are, like you alluded to, they are very surprising in terms of some of the overlaps or the resonances today. I just want to tell you, I did the Domasaurus thing too. I did it about four or five years ago. They already had the Oculus goggles. This is Nero's <laughs> yeah, house. Yeah. And it's it's an archaeological, at least at that time, it was an archaeological site drawn weekdays. And you could only go on a tour on the weekends because they were still working on it. And it's we have to take a break here. And Mary Beard is coming in in just a second here. But it's also a reminder that like a lot of what was ancient Rome is well below street level in Rome. I mean, Rome is sort of phyllo dough piled up layer by layer by layer. So um, there's a lot of stuff. That a big cake, a big, a big white, a big uh, baked cake. Yes. There's lots of layers. It's a layer cake. Yeah. All right. Well, first of all, you got to come. I promise to come back when the next book comes out. I know you're writing about Claudia. Uh, I would love to talk to you about that. Doug Boyne, professor of history at St. Louis University, the author of, and this is just a terrific book, Alaric the Goth, An Outsider's History of the the fall of Rome. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Mary Beard.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Free. Free. Oh, what a word. Oh, what a word. Say it again. Free. I often thought, I often dreamed how it would be, and yet I never thought I'd be, once again, free. But when you come to think of such things, a man should have the rights that all others, can you imagine what it will be like when I am? Can you see me? You see me as a Roman with my head unbowed Sing it good and loud Free Like a Roman having rights and like a Roman proud Can you see me? I can see you Can you see me as a photo? So, that's from a comedy, obviously If anything happened on the way to the forum Love those Sondheim chords there uh, But it makes it a pretty serious point And it's one of the points that we will get into uh, with Mary Beard, yeah, I mean you can't you can't book a better guest on ancient Rome than Mary Beard. There isn't one. Uh, Mary Beard uh, is the author of best-selling books, including SBQR, which is you, I mean, you kind of have to have a copy of it. Uh, her newest book is uh, Emperor of Rome: Ruling the Ancient Roman World. We are very excited to have her with us today. Hi. 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 It's great to be here. So let's just let's start there with the pseudolus, and uh, and funny thing happened on the way to the forum because you know we're going to talk about emperors and emperors and maybe senators are very much part of the modern mental picture of Rome. But as you point out in in all of your books, really this is a system built on slavery. It's a system built on provincial administration uh, that's exploitive. The further away you get from Rome, the more you have either highly incompetent or just rapacious uh, people in charge of the destinies of, of the locals. Say a little bit more about all that. Well, I mean, I, I think Rome is, is you know, a wonderfully complicated place. And you can't really think of the Roman Empire in any singular way at all. <laughs> it's, it's completely different if you are living in the city centre of the capital and you're, you know, a, let's say a senator from if you're a farmer in Roman Britain and your life experiences are absolutely different. Um, what I, I think is interesting, though, almost throughout the Roman world, is although we have a we have a very kind of um, top-heavy view of what the Romans are like, and a very theoretical view, thinking about um, freedom and citizenship, and I, all that is hugely important. But I think that it's easy to forget that 
Um, we can also get the view from the ordinary people, the slaves, a little bit of the women, uh, almost wherever they're living. And so I, I think that although my new book is called Emperor of Rome, and it's I, I, I'm very interested in what on earth it was like to be Emperor of Rome, and, and it wasn't all kind of lurid um, uh, hanky-panky in the swimming pool. I can tell you it was an awful lot of paper pushing. But I'm interested in how the emperor can help you see the ordinary people of the Roman world, how he engages with them, how he responds to them, almost wherever they come from. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things that jumped out right away from the new book, and I'm not always all of we just got the PDF yesterday, so I'm not all the way through it. But, um, you know, the reminder that being emperor of Rome was this, you know, position in some ways of kind of unchecked power, but in other ways yeah. it was like being a slightly more powerful than usual bureaucrat. Yeah. And and I think people would be surprised at the amount of time they just went on the road solving or trying to resolve incredibly petty <laughs> disputes. I think there's one involving a chamber pot thrown yes. out a window. Let's do that one. Yeah, there's, uh, it's, it's, there are wonderful stories of ordinary people that you see through uh, emperor's decisions because part of the kind of branding of the Roman emperor, and it might have been sometimes more symbolic than real, but part of the branding was that he was accessible to everybody, uh, in theory, uh, and that uh, he should solve, solve and resolve people's disputes. There's a great story of the Emperor Hadrian, who's um, going through the countryside and a, a, a Roman a, a woman, an elderly woman, comes up to him and says, excuse me, Hadrian, I've got uh, something to ask. And Hadrian turns around and says words to the effect of, terribly sorry, I haven't got the time. And she says, you haven't got the time for me. You've not got the time to be emperor. And you find that that, that must, in a sense, be a bit of a fantasy about the emperor. But it's actually made real in several cases. And you mentioned um, one of the cases we know about, because it got the result got inscribed proudly on stone, of a dispute that came to the emperor Augustus from the town of Knaidos in modern Turkey, where there'd been two kind of warring families. And in this city, one of the families was kind of going round to the other family's house at night and bashing it up. Uh, the, the occupants of that house got understandably fed up with this and so instructed one of their slaves to uh, go onto the upper floor and throw the contents of a chamber pot onto the heads of the people who were marauding outside, um, which the slave dutifully did. But he also dropped the chamber pot, and, uh, intentionally or not, we don't know. And it killed one of the marauders outside. So that ended up being a murder case. And the local authorities in Canados were minded to find the slave's owners guilty of murder. They managed, we don't know exactly how, they managed to get their case heard by the emperor hundreds of miles away. And then they recorded his decision. and. The decision from Augustus was that it actually had been uh, justifiable self-defense, and so they got off. <laughs> now, I mean, I think it's you know, it's great to to you know feel yourself on the um, on the you know seedy side of the Roman street and uh, what it might have been like at night in the city of Canidos uh, and what might have been flying around. And it's fun and it's evocative and it's kind of gritty. What is also amazing 
is that that kind of case somehow ended up in the emperor's entry. And we know about it because he did make a decision and then the people proudly inscribed that on stone. And it, it's only one of many such cases that come to the emperor. You know, what do you do if you know, I've lost my cow in enemy action? How am I going to get compensation? <laughs> this kind of stuff. Yeah, there and, actually are cases about whose cow is this or how am I going to be yeah, re- recompensed yeah. for my cow? And it's like a small claims court or something. Hey, while we're, yeah. you were talking about Augustus and you also used the word uh, brand or branding. And this is a really interesting thing from the book. And I hadn't really thought about it this way ever. Uh, which is Augustus obviously starts out as Octavian. Uh, he is, um, you know, involved in an awful lot of internecine violence, and he somehow or other transforms himself from that to Augustus, who is, I mean, there's Augustus and there's everybody else when you're talking about Roman emperors, just in terms of how long he served. And and the thing that he created is what everybody else wound up managing. So say say who Augustus was, but I'd also love to hear a little bit about the rebranding of Augustus. Yeah, yeah. well, the rebranding is is one of the most successful rebranding in the history of the world, I think. Um, You have to go back to the assassination of Julius Caesar, who had more or less demolished, for whatever reason, the earlier period of quasi-sort-of power-sharing democracy in Rome, and had made himself, had himself made, dictator forever. He's sort of, he's the first proto-emperor. He gets assassinated in 44 BCE by um, a, a whole cabal of senators led by Brutus and Cassius, and they're assassinating him in the name of liberty. Um, actually, Brutus and Cassius have had a rather um, excessive good press. Yes, they have. Uh, it, it, you, know, you know, thanks partly to William Shakespeare, who made them dutiful and heroic and principled in his play Julius Caesar. But they were both, uh, you know, nasty pieces of work, and they were also pretty inefficient as assassins because they they killed Caesar, and you know, in assassination. It's the killing is usually the easy bit. There's what the hell you do next that's difficult. And Brutus and Cassius had no forward plan. And what they unleashed was a, a, more than a decade of civil war, um, where they fight it out with the supporters of Caesar, and then the supporters of Caesar fight it out amongst themselves in really, really nasty. I mean, you were quite euphemistic about the civil war. It was um, the most horrible period of civil violence in Rome. People's heads were cut off and pinned up in the forum and um, mutilation and it was ghastly. And the last man standing in all this was Julius Caesar's great nephew, uh, Octavian, uh, who makes himself, because there isn't anybody else left by then, um, he's just defeated Antony and Cleopatra, he makes himself sole ruler. Now, what he then does is amazing, slightly chilling, and utterly mysterious, because he manages to give himself an entirely new image. He had been a foul young thug who'd raised a private army and had ended up the sort of victor in the civil wars after Caesar's death. Um, he then changes his name, changes his image, and makes himself father of the new regime. Now, the name, I think, is crucially important. He, he had been Octavian. He calls himself Augustus. And it's a name that we now take for granted, I think. Uh, if 
you'd been around at the time, you would have been, I think, very unsettled by that name. <laughs> um, it has a sort of North Korean flavour to it, I think, um, because what it means, literally, it's made up and it means revered one. Right? Uh, and in a sense, this is a really in-your-face bit of marketing, uh, but a in-your-face bit of marketing, which actually works. No, so much so that, as I say, we now take it for granted. The month of August is called after Augustus, and we don't think of it as being uh, the inheritance of this young folk who turned himself into a revered one. And maybe we could and- quickly also mention, just in terms of marketing, maybe one of the more impressive pieces of marketing is the Aeneid by Virgil, uh, yes. where, in fact, Virgil is the, maybe the greatest ad man of all time. Uh, he is not only marketing Augustus, he's marketing the notion that Augustus has some kind of lineal connections to, yes. to Aeneas, which would mean that Augustus is sort of divine. But- that is true, and the Aeneid has proved, you know, perhaps the most long-lasting legacy, uh, apart from the name of August, uh, of the Augustan regime. I think it's uh, Virgil's Aeneid. I mean, it's a poem that must have been being read every day since 19 BC. It's as it's as influential, at least in Western culture, as the Bible. Um, it, it's also an extremely subtle poem, and I think that had it just been. Uh, a PR exercise for Augustus. Nobody would be bothered to read oh, yeah. it now. Right. Uh, but what he does is he, it is, in a sense, a PR exercise, at least for the idea of Romanus, but it's a clever PR exercise, which, in a sense, questions what it is to be a Roman, who is a Roman, where do the Romans come from, and how should they beh- behave? And we now feel very iffy, I think, about you know the hero Aeneas's um, abandonment of his lover Dido in order to come to Rome, and we tend to think, oh well, the Romans would have thought that was right. There hasn't been a a, a time in history when people haven't worried about quite how good Aeneas, the founder of the Roman race, was, <laughs> and at the very end of the poem, we see him slaughtering someone who's surrendered. And I, I sometimes think that when Augustus first read this or had it read to him, he must have wondered whether he'd paid for the right thing. <laughs> uh, because there is a glorifying sense of the the gods giving Roman Empire without end and so forth. But it's also deeply, deeply questioning of some of the Roman values that they might have taken for granted. And I think that's what's caused its longevity. You know, it's been because Virgil is so problematic about what it is to be Roman that we find it fascinating to read. I mean, if it had just been a kind of advert for the Romans, I think we would have put it away along many centuries ago. You know, I think of the quote from 1984. It's something to the effect of who controls the past controls the present. Uh, yes. If you can control the old narratives, you can control the present narrative. You can, if you can control the present narrative, you can have a lot to say also about the future. And all of that is is true in the work that you do. And we should say that it's not just the Aeneid, it's more contemporary work. You talked about uh, Cassius and Brutus. And Brutus is like a horrible person who would like <laughs> loan money at 48%. And if you couldn't pay it back, he like starved five people to death. 
yes. while yes. trying to collect yes. a debt. That's the kind of person this was. But t- let's say, talk about some of the other people who come to us through culture uh, a little bit more recently than, than say, Shakespeare. Uh, you know, a lot of us either read I, Claudius by Robert uh, yeah. Graves or watched the terrific <laughs> PBS series. And we met this very kind of endearing, thoughtful, stuttering, stammering, you know, a little bit of a weak guy, but just trying to get through life without getting killed by his wife or somebody else. Um, Maybe not satisfactory by your lights, not a good real portrayal of who this guy was. No, I, look, I have to say that I'm a huge fan of I, Claudius, and it, it, I, I will, you know, I will go to my grave still seeing um, the Empress Livia as Sean Phillips and Claudius <laughs> as Derek Jacobi and Augustus as Brian, Brian Blessed. Blessed, yes. And I have to say, and this is a t- terrible confession, that the TV series, I think, was much more memorable for me than the novels, which are fine, but mm. not as good as the telly, I think. Um, and I think what's interesting about that is what Graves constructed and then was adapted for the telly was a vision of what was going on inside the palace that Romans would have recognised. It was partly because he got it from Roman sources. Graves, for example, had translated um, the biographies of Roman emperors written by Suetonius. Uh, And it gives us one deeply suspicious, very the edgy view of the dark dealings inside the imperial court, with, as you say, Claudius, who's kind of the hero of this, being a slight bumbler trying to do his best. And I think that that's, again, a bit like Shakespeare being very generous to Brutus and Cassius. I think Graves was very generous to Claudius, um, who certainly was an intellectual and had written histories of the Etruscans and things like that. But also, uh, according to Suetonius in bits that Graves left out, had slaughtered a good number of the senators and and also other elite classes in Rome. But it's that image, I think, is one that you you can't ever get rid of and you shouldn't get rid of. I mean, I think that once you have a palace monarchy in Rome, like like the uh, imperial regime is, um, everybody is sitting there um, wondering what's going on inside the palace and the people inside the palace are looking over their shoulders. Court cultures do that, wondering who's in with the emperor, who's not in. Mm. And I think my point is, I think I don't want to get rid of that image. I think it's really important. And you know, go to dinner with the Roman emperor and you'll soon see the food tasters standing behind him. And you'll wonder why the food tasters are there for half a second. And then you'll think it's because he's worried about being poisoned by some of his guests. Right. And I, I think that image of suspicion is is chilling and, and fascinating. But I think one of the things that I want to do in the book is to say it's only one side. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is one side, but it's only one side. Yeah. And, you know, we do have to think about how the emperor, this ordinary guy who might be a bit bumbling like Graves made Claudius, might be not very interested or whatever, um, how they actually manage to run the empire. And if they don't, because they don't always, who does it? <laughs> and, you know, it, you know, in a way, you can say that a slogan of of most imperial regimes, and I think it's partly of my book, is that nobody ever does run any empire on their own. You know, one man rule is never one man rule. It's always um, it, it, it's always a joint enterprise. And 
in Rome, it's an enterprise which involves slaves, it involves freed slaves, it involves um, uh, senators being posted to distant provinces, writing back to the emperor saying, you know, what am I going to do with this inconvenient group of religious fanatics called Christians? I really don't know how to handle them, uh, and so on. And if you if you scratch the surface of the elite power structure and the Sean Phillips and Brian Blessed's of this world, you find a whole load of day-to-day improvisations, problems, chamber pots, lost cows. <laughs> yeah, I mean, your, your um, account of, C- of Cicero showing up to one of those postings is he shows up and the, the army units aren't around and nobody seems to know anything. And it isn't this incredibly efficient clockwork that we often think about. Hey, we have to take a very short break here. Mary Beard, don't go anywhere. The rest of you listening, don't go anywhere. We'll have a little bit more time with Mary Beard just after a very quick interruption. All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 on any podcast app. If there's a place for reviews and ratings, give us lots of stars and be sure to mention the high thread count in our sheets and pillowcases, as well as the complimentary breakfast buffet. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. And thanks to Kat Pastor, our technical producer, Jonathan McBance, for coming down and manning the phones. Uh, Lily Tyson, the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer of this uh, episode. We are excited to have with us Mary Beard, uh, the quintessential historian of ancient Rome. She's the author of the best-selling, many best-selling books, including SBQR. Her new book, which I'm having fun with so far, uh, Emperor of Rome, uh, Ruling the Ancient Roman World. So, Mary Beard, um, before we run out of time, I want to get into a couple more specific stories from the book that are just fascinating or just ways in which you help us understand that things are a little bit different than how we might have received them. But just before we, we so that we don't run out of time before we talk about this, you know, we, we began the show a while ago just talking about this whole idea of why people now would be thinking about the Roman Empire. Mm. And um, one of the things I wonder, and, and it's very, very much there in your books, I think, is that our, our collective memory of the empire is kind of a chimera of what we recognize uh, in government. There's a Senate, there are courts of law, there's a large, well-developed bureaucracy. And then what we fear, one one man whose power has no limits. Do you think that's what, are we kind of running our thumb down the knife's edge of that as we are attracted to the idea of Rome? Yeah, well, in a way, yes. I mean, I think that that Rome offers us something which is simultaneously familiar and also utterly weird. And so <laughs> in, in that sense, Romans are extremely good to think with. You can't ever quite pin them down. You know, as I said, they're, they're all kinds of different sorts of Romans. And I'm sure that those people who you know, I would, I imagine, I shouldn't be certain, I imagine <laughs> that those people who think about the Roman Empire seven times a day are probably imagining themselves as emperors and senators, not as slaves and ordinary people. But uh, they enable us to fantasize about power. They enable us to analyze power and to think 
what is dangerous about power. And I think they give you everything in, in, in a single culture. And I think that's what is that's what keeps them going. I mean, if the Romans were just awful thugs, um, um, you know, a bit like the Aeneid, if the Aeneid had just been a PR exercise, we wouldn't any longer be interested. Yeah. If the Romans are just awful thugs, we wouldn't any longer uh, be interested. It's the fact that they are difficult, awkward. They do things that we deplore, and yet they analyze those things with. Ex- extraordinary acuity and they still speak to us and I, I think that you 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 don't find lessons for modern the modern world in ancient Rome I think that's um I, I think that's pie in the sky honestly even, even though when President Trump was president I was always being asked you know which Roman emperor was he most <laughs> like and um I was evaded the question um uh, but I think what they they do is help us think about some of our own political issues differently. They make us more acute in seeing some of the things that are going on, notions of populism, for example, the dangers of autocracy, how you can slip into it, and and how it then continues. I mean, the Roman Empire continued because people actually did not object to it. Mm-hmm. And that's the chilling. That, in some ways, is the chilling thing. Right. So um, I should say the book is full of all kinds of ripping good yarns, uh, and, and uh, there's no way we could cover all of them or even some of them uh, here. Uh, but if you want to find out uh, which Roman Empire introduced the whoopee, the emperor introduced the whoopee cushion, <laughs> that's on page one. You don't have to read very far. It's like right there on page one. Uh, we address, or Mary addresses, the uh, the whole Caligula and his horse thing, uh, all, all that stuff. So we won't do that now. It, you know, one thing I do want to talk about is the way women and prominent women in the Roman Empire are understood. And once again, yeah. we understand them a lot through popular culture. Mm-hmm. We meet Livia and Agrippina uh, in I, Claudius, uh, in, yeah. in, H, in HBO's Rome. We meet Atia, uh, mother of Augustus, uh, played by Polly Walker quite memorably, mm-hmm. uh, and clearly drawn from a lot of other different sources, yeah. uh, probably Claudia, Doug Boyne's Boyne, uh, friend, and Mark Antony's wife, Fulvia. But they're often referred, they're often shown as ambitious, shrewd, manipulative, yeah. sexually uninhibited, morally yeah. bankrupt. So yeah. say about what's happening there. Why do we get that picture? Well, I think it's partly our fantasy and it's partly Roman fantasism. I think there's an element of truth in this that um, as soon as you get to one man rule or the very powerful men of the late Republic, it is the case that some women, because they are close to the person in power, have de facto in practice more power than any women had had before. Um, you know, the, the women can bend the emperor's ears just like the barber can bend his ears or his masseur can bend his ears. That's true. The the image, however, is is goes beyond that, and it it tends to stress these powerful women, empresses or lovers of the emperor, um, actually scheming at high politics and getting their own way, you know, in, on the big stage. Livia is, Augustus's wife is the classic example of that, who um, is supposed to have, if you believe Robert Graves, uh, poisoned all the alternative heirs to the throne until she can get her own son by a previous marriage. Tiberius onto the throne. And that's where I part company with the standard image. Because that's weeks to me of pretty much 
universal standard Western misogyny. You know, if you want to explain why the emperor is making such a mess of things, if you want to explain why his succession plans go awry, what do you do? You blame the woman. Mm. And we have a very long history in politics in the West of blaming the woman. At this very minute in the UK, uh, we're having a, an investigation into our responses to COVID and whether Boris Johnson behaved properly and got it right. What's happening? People are explaining Johnson's manoeuvres by saying it's what his wife Carrie wanted. Now, we have no idea whether that's true, but you know, uh, I smell uh, cherchez la femme, blame the woman. You know, the underlying, still existing misogyny of power, which you can trace right back to Livia and beyond. I think there's also, I mean, I absolutely agree with everything that you just said. And it, But I think there's also, I mean, and maybe the HBO Rome is a better example of this, you know, in order to make these stories interesting and exciting and and attractive to people, having colorful female characters, yes, I mean, obviously they're they're stereotyped and oversimplified yeah. and and overblown. But they're, you know, I mean, you want to see Polly Walker do something. Yes, you know, yeah. <laughs> so. you know Sean Phillips was absolutely memorable for me as as Livia. And, you know, I want a good story, too. I want the women in there. And, you know, I'm happy to go along with that fantasy. And as I say, it was one of the Roman fantasies. I just think that, you know, in the end, you have to say, maybe there's something else driving this, too. Yeah, I, think so, I love be. the story. Yeah. I love the story. But I'm suspicious of it. Mary Beard, we have to stop. I hate that we have to stop. Oh, Historian of shame. ancient Rome, <laughs> uh, the author of best-selling books, including SPQR. you got to check out the new one, Emperor of Rome, Ruling the Ancient Roman World. Thank you so much for your time. Come back anytime you want. Thanks to everybody for listening. And we are done here for the day. Peggy Lee will take us out. Now and then in Rome I get that old yen in Rome And naturally when in Rome I do as the Romans do If I ride happily Best wishes from Napoli Don't cable me snappily To tell me we're through Cause once again in Rome In somebody's den in Rome well, pussycat, then in Rome, I do as the Romans disregard the sign.